And welcome to the Women in Film and Television Ireland podcast. My name is Fiona Kinsella, I'm a producer and I'm also a board member of Women in Film and Television Ireland. An audio mix can make or break a film, but what does it take to forge a career in this field? As part of our Crew Talk series, Irish sound engineer Aoife McHale spoke with Academy Award winning sound engineer Laura Hirschberg about her career to date and the artistry behind what makes a sound mix great. Hello everybody, thank you so much for joining us for our crew talks. Uh, I am Yaro, the Vice Chair of WIFT, and I am joined today by two women who work in, in sound in the film and television industry. We are to, going to talk about everything sound, and our two guests are Laura Hirschberg and Eva McHale. Welcome, both of you. Hi, Laura. Hi, Eva. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? Very well. Doing well. Thank you. Good. And where are you joining us from today? Uh, I'm in San Francisco, California, in my mm -hmm. luxurious home studio, which is a mess. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm in uh, Donegal in Ireland. Wonderful, wonderful. So I just want to say briefly something about Laura. Uh, Laura uh, has worked on more than 150 feature films and documentaries. I think majority of which you have all seen. Just go to her IMDb, check out her filmography. Um, Laura mixes, supervises and edits sound. And she has been nominated uh, for an Academy Award um, for The Dark Knight, on which I did one day as a location PA, I remember back in Chicago. Nice. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then Laura won an Academy Award the I think the following year for um, sound mixing on uh, Inception, which was an incredible movie. So welcome Laura. And uh, yeah. I will introduce Aoife. Aoife, <clears throat> she's actually uh, one of my colleagues and friends. Uh, we met on um, a set when we worked on several short films together. Ifa graduated as a sound engineer in 2013 and has been working as a freelancing sound editor, um, recordist and Foley art artist in film. And in the last few years, she has been working in television production as a sound recordist and boom operator. So today's discussion will be between um, Ifa and Laura. And uh, if you have any questions for our guests, please pop them into the chat um, uh, section and we can ask them throughout or after um, their conversation. And I'd just like to remind everyone that WIFT is an organization that welcomes everybody, uh, uh, all people and women from different backgrounds, nationalities and abilities. And we hold this space as a safe space for all of us. So uh, without further ado, let's Let's begin. Uh, Aoife, take it away, please. Hello. Hi, everyone listening online. Hello, Laura, and thank you, Yara, for that. Um, one thing that I think confuses a lot of people is there's a lot of different... So if you're watching the credits on the film, you notice that there's going to be so many different credits for sound. Could you talk a little bit, Laura, about the specific sort of... what you're, what it is that you do? Right, so my main credit is um, re-recording mixer. So um, my job is to blend the sounds that have been edited and collected and recorded on the set and then added in post-production together to create the sound that you hear coming out of the speakers in the theater or at home. Um, and I like to use, because I think they're very helpful, are cooking analogies. I think we all enjoy cooking analogies. I would say that the, as a sound mixer, my job is I'm basically the cook. So um, I take the ingredients and I make the dish. Now the ingredients are collected and selected and for lack of a better word, grown for me by the sound editors and sound designers and the production mixer on the set. So those are the people who actually supply the materials that I use to create the final, the final mix. And in terms of what a sound designer does, that's a little bit of a hybrid job now because it's somebody who actually collects sounds, who actually makes sounds in a studio. Um, 
I would argue that a lot of my job is actually sound design because I'm taking different elements and creating a new thing from them. But they're also kind of responsible uh, in general or historically for the basically what the sound is going, what the movie is going to sound like, how the director wants the sound of the film to feel and, and create an emotional space for people. So in my cooking analogy, they would probably be the chef. They're the ones who are kind of make the menu and we are the ones who execute that. And um, yeah, I, I think that's Very pretty cool. clear. But, but you could also look at it like, there's a lot of confusion, you know, like who's the sound editor, who's the sound designer, what's a re-recording mixer, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of like categories. And if you think about um, on set, you know, there's an art director, there's a production designer, there's a set decorator. Those are all people who work in the visual side of things, but they've kind of, that's the division of labor. And it's kind of the same in sound, you know, it's all, all sort of technical or, or um, creative categories have a division of labor. So that's, in sound, the division labor is sound editors, uh, production mixers, which are the ones who record the sound on set, re-recording mixers, which are me, who take those, those sounds that are recorded and put them out into the world, and sound designers, who are the ones who sort of decide what the, the bigger picture of the sound is going to sound like. That'd be kind of like the, the production designer in, in the, on set. Very well put, yeah. Yeah. What was it that kind of attracted you to sound in the first place? It's yeah, what, what was it? Well, I went to um, film school. I had a, you know, aspirations of being a director and a writer. And um, when I got to film school, I kind of gravitated towards post-production in general, uh, picture editing um, and sound. I was a musician, so I, I kind of had that kind of in my heart. But I also am a little bit of a gearhead. I like equipment. And so sound kind of triangulated those things for me. I remember in my first sound class, they introduced us to the Nagra, which is a tape recorder, a portable tape recorder. And you're nodding because I think you remember yeah. these. Some people do. Um, it's this beautiful Swiss made piece of equipment with like super cool knobs and buttons. And it's just <laughs> like, it's almost indestructible. Like you can drop a Nagra out of an airplane and it'll, it'll keep working. So <laughs> they showed us this piece of equipment and I was like, ah, my heart palpitated because it was just such a cool piece of gear. And I thought, you know, that'd be something fun to, to work with. And so I kind of, I think in most jobs where you're successful, you kind of triangulate your, your interests. So for me, it was storytelling it was technology and it was music, but basically sound as an emotional tool. And that became what my job is. When I was in film school, I had no idea my job even existed. And I think that's pretty common for people who go into the film industry. There's all these great creative jobs. I mean, my job is probably, no offense to anybody, but I have the best job because I get to work at the very end of the process. And when we, we put it all together, I think you actually make the movie in post-production you know, all the, the photography is collecting it, the set is collecting it, the actors are performing stuff, but we take all of those elements in post-production picture and sound and, and, and combine them together and create the story that you're going to watch. And so my job is at the very end of that process, we're kind of like the last thing that happens before it goes out into the theater. Often we finish, you know, four weeks before it's actually released. I work directly with the picture editor, with the um, director, with the producers, with the composers. Those are the people who I talk to every day. And, you know, we basically decide what that movie is going to be that you're going to see out in the world. So it's, it's a really fun, creative, you know, right in the, in the meat of, of the movie um, job. I really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one of the questions I was going to ask is who would you be collaborating with most you said they're like the picture editor and the composer director you know different people like that yeah. um i find it easier to chat to other people that are involved in sound composers and that they kind of get what you're thinking about get, get the language mm -hmm. can we find a sort of language to talk to people that wouldn't really have that vocabulary like the director or a producer coming in or someone like that you know when people yeah. are asking for you to make it brighter make it more robust you know Mm -hmm. Is it is it can it be difficult sometimes to to communicate each other's ideas coming from different worlds? I think that's a really good question because um, it's a problem because people you know talking about sound is like you know dancing about architecture, which I don't know where that quote was from, but there's somebody talking about music, and it's like 
you don't really, there is no language for it, but I think that um, the best directors for me are the ones who talk to me as they would talk to actors. So they give me emotional language. I want to feel this. And it's my job to interpret that and use the tools that I have to, to create that um, feeling for them. So and it's the same in lighting and in camera. I'm sure it's the same idea. Like I want it to feel scary or, or treacherous or, you know, warm. And so you have to use those, those adjectives to um, present with your, the tools that you have to present that feeling. Um, you know, some people talk that sound is like about emotion, but I think it's actually more the adjectives. Like we actually provide, you know, it can be a door closed, but can it be a heavy menacing door close? Can it be a squeaky, creaky, spooky door close? So those are the, the adjectives are the things that we, we work on. And I think it's kind of, it's usually for me, um, pretty useless when a director says, I want more subwoofer. I'm like, okay, good. <laughs> yeah, so what, yeah. you know, or I need more surrounds. It's like, okay, but I'd rather <laughs> they say to me, like, I want to feel this is something is coming or I want to feel like I'm, I don't know what's happening or I do know what's happening. So that then I have something to work with. Um, and so I try to help the directors that I talk to that I work with, I try to help them in that way. Like somebody says like, it's not really, um, you know, I feel like it's too timid and I can say, Oh, you think it should be a little more. And I help them with some adjectives. I sort of help translate or interpret. And then we can have a conversation about that. So I don't wait for them to tell me, you know, exactly what they are feeling. My job is to kind of help tease that out and to, to work with them to get what they want. Um, mm -hmm. that's the biggest part of my job basically is being a translator, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I get that. <laughs> you know? You're saying there about, um, some sound effects, like say you're saying, uh, door, if it's going to be, a, a like an eerie creak or if it's just going to be a slam or, you know, different, cause you've worked on a lot of different genres, like from mm -hmm. things like a lot of the Marvel stuff or inception. And then you do a lot of kids films as well. I've noticed. Yeah. Is there a, big difference for you in how you would approach the different genres particularly with um going from some big blockbuster to an animation like right. it's the feeling you're talking a bit about the feeling there like yeah what what's what's that feeling like then when at the end of the day if you're working on something that's really dramatic and difficult you know a difficult subject maybe um as compared to a really light-hearted kids film so I'm always, because I did, you know, aspire to be a director or a writer, I'm always thinking about the audience. So in a kid's film, the audience should be children. And as adults, we should feel comfortable sitting next to them while they're watching this material. And instead of like, I'm not, I'm not working on a kid's movie for me, I'm working on a kid's movie for a kid. So very often we're tempted to like pull out all the bells and whistles and do something kind of you know, impressive, but that's not necessarily appropriate for that audience. And so, um, or, you know, the Marvel movies, um, they are also like kind of a unique situation because um, they are big blockbuster movies, but they also all fit together in a way. So we're very conscious when we're making them of like, this one isn't, we want them to all be impressive and be experiences on their own. But I also personally, I want them to all kind of go together in a way that makes sense for the audience. So um, it's like, we're not going to change the, you know, we're creating a magazine. We're not going to change the typeface on every freaking issue. We're going to use some of the tools that we've always used and, and the expectations. And then within that framework, we'll, we'll explore different things, but we don't reinvent it all the time. So the types of movies that I work on are, for instance, documentaries, which are very close to my heart. I really enjoy working on them. And I find that part of the thing I can bring to a documentary is that sort of movie experience that maybe not expected or required, but when you're watching it, you feel you get that kind of rush from watching a film. You can get that from any kind of film. And with a documentary, you're sort of adding this extra thing that may be unexpected. So the, the genre and the audience and the um, how the, the film fits into maybe other films in that category are all really important considerations. And that's what I think about. I don't think about, 
you know, I, I want to do what's best for that particular, you know, piece, mm-hmm. however it lives in the world and not necessarily how, what I, what I might want or require from a movie. It's more like what, what does this movie require and what does the audience require for them to, to really enjoy it fully. Mm-hmm. What you're saying there, just at the end, um, what the audience requires and not so much what you think yourself. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have to rein yourself back or um, do you try to input a lot with, with directors, but they just completely like disagree with the direction you want to go? Absolutely. A lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's part of the job. Like I'll go down weird rabbit holes and then people say like, no. And you're like, okay. So you just can't, <laughs> you know, part, the fun part of the job is trying things, but the real part of the job is delivering what's been asked for you to do. Um, yeah. It's, it is my work, but it's not my movie. And so I don't, I don't need to um, necessarily, I mean, I, I enjoy participating and putting my contribution in but it's at the end of the day it's 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 their product it's their it's their piece and so they need to be fully on board with everything in it and I'm not going to argue some idea that I have or some thing that I want to put in beyond maybe making a making a case for it or trying to explain why I think it's a good idea but if it's if it's not their idea then it's that's cool that's fine uh, one of the things I've been most interested in in uh, films like Inception and the Marvel films are some of the really iconic sound effects that end up coming out of it. Um, things like, you know, Iron Man's hand cannon or mm-hmm. Mjolnir from Thor and those, mm-hmm. like those, they have to start somewhere. They start, I assume, in the studio um, or just on a piece of paper of what somebody wants it to sound like. But then mm-hmm. it ends up going into... Um, how children start playing they make those sounds and it's in their toys like the toys have the sounds and everything what's it like creating something as iconic as as those that's really fun because I I you know I worked on those first Iron Man movies and we put that sound in and then like you realize oh wow this is this is gonna go on every movie now every time this guy goes up or the sound of his voice in the in the the suit or the sound of um, the different locations. So once I, we sort of realized, or I realized that early on, I really started making notes and trying to be very consistent with the, like the reverbs that I use in the different places or the effects that use on different voices and the sound effects. Of course we have, I work at Skywalker sound. So all of the sounds are in this giant library. We keep it like completely um, clean and, and accessible so that everybody can go and look for the thing that they want. We, everything is named in a very orderly, you know, fashion. So that's a huge part of it is being, um, really thoughtful about how you're going to organize all that material. Cause like you said, it's going to, it's going to go on. And uh, honestly, the, the companies that make the toys and stuff, one of the things we do early on is deliver them some sound effects so they can start you know, putting those oh, what in. I- Oh. What I want to know uh, is if you get a cut for each toy that's sold. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, come on. The sound makes the toy, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess I wonder if the sound, if the costume designer gets a cut for every, you know, I don't think so. I mean, we basically work for, you know, we're like, we get, we get paid to do our jobs. And um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think there probably is some, I mean, composers do get residual sound, sound effects editors don't. There's been some talk about that, I think, and I'm not sure where it is right now. It's a conversation mm-hmm. that I kind of listen to, you know, on the side, but I'm not really involved in, so. Mm-hmm. Go when ahead, you come in to... I just had a, yeah, that was a little. Yeah. Oh, you're fine. <laughs> away. Go ahead. <laughs> when you come in to, um, to build like those sound effects or um, soundscapes and that, would you, you'd always, you, for the most part, I would assume anyway that you're starting from scratch. Do you ever have like a, a list of things that you send off to the Foley artists or to the, you know, the sound recordists that are on location? Would you have um, ideas of how you want to build something and then ask someone to go and record that for you? Or how, how would that process work? Right. So that, that particular, in my world, that particular job is kind of um, taken by the, the sound designer and the supervising sound editor. So they're the ones who start off before I even am brought on to the process. Um, like I said, collecting the sounds and creating the sounds. And they'll go back and forth with the picture department and send them ideas. 
ideally we send them stuff very early on so they can start editing with it and liking it and not trying to do, you know, a kind of their own version of something that we may or may not be able to use or may not be able to, you know, really use effectively. So we try to give them sounds early on so they can get used to them. And even while they're filming, sometimes we'll give them sounds so they can kind of um, get an idea, you know, as the picture's coming in, how they're going to, how they're going to use the timing of things. Um, it's common that uh, the sound that we want to use may require the picture to be opened up or the picture that we finally get in visual effects may be a longer or shorter event that would affect like a specific sound effect that we have. Um, I just finished a movie Shang-Chi, which is another Marvel film that's going to come out in the fall. And Shang-Chi has very iconic, you know, cool, awesome, cool ring things that he does. And so those were sounds that we had and the visual effect wasn't quite done. Um, but we put them in and then when the visual effect came in, it kind of all lined up. So I think part of it is we got really used to this sound and loved it. And so when the visual effect came in and we we're like, yeah, the visual effect even makes it cooler. So if you kind of, you, you work in both directions, you work maybe with the sound first for the visual effect first for those kind of um, kind of created sounds or, or dragons or monsters or anything that's kind of not in the real world that we have to um, create. We, we go through a process of, a long process of making the sounds, making sure that the director likes them. And they'll, they'll also tell us like, yeah, that sound, those, those, those rings are going to glow before they fire. So we need to feel this power or the, you know, they'll give us the, again, the, the adjectives that we need to kind of create stuff before we actually see it. Cause very often, and it's the case, I think in this movie as well, is that some of the visual effects, we, we didn't get to see the very, very final versions of them. We got really close. We got the animations. We know the timing and stuff, but you know, it's like, okay, bye. Hope, you know, go look in the theater and see if it worked. You know, <laughs> like I said, it's the very last thing in the process with, with visual effects. Obviously um, also kind of at the very tail there. Yeah. That was one of the things I was actually going to ask was um, at what point in the process uh, would you usually come in? Would you have the full cut off? the VFX, but like you say, a lot of the times that you wouldn't. Um, what point would you come on board? Um, like, when do you know that you're going to be working on this film? And uh, like, are you getting stuff ahead of time before you get the cut? Um, well, as a as the re-recording mixer, I come in usually like eight, eight weeks before the, before the end of the process. So I'm like, again, at the very end. And we try to do that at the end so that we do have the final cut, the final music, the final, you know, we have to put the final stuff in. So we're pushed off to the very end. Um, but often before the picture is, while they're filming, if I'm doing the dialogue, I'll get, you know, um, communications from the, the set, like we're recording on this location. It sounds really noisy. Can we use this? Is this going to be okay? Should we try something else? Are these microphones going to work? We want to pitch this voice. Is this recording going to work? So they, a lot of times it's just sort of preparing themselves for, um, problems that may or they may or may not be able to solve on the set or that there's going to be ADR later. So it's, there's a lot of it is kind of, um, cause when you're shooting, obviously you're, you're under a big time constraint. You're, there's a lot of things you can't control and sound unfortunately is one of those things that gets kind of like, ah, we'll deal with it later. And that can be very expensive. If you could do a very simple thing to fix it on the day, or you can spend a lot of money later and try to fix it and not be happy. So all you directors and cinematographers out there, listen to your sound people because they're going to save you money and you're going to be much happier with, you know, being able to hear the performance that you captured on that day. If you can't hear it, what did you do? You know, so you, you need to go back and get that actor and it gets, you know, very complicated. Um, yeah. Yeah. I forgot Sorry, what you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh yeah, do I, get the, do I get the stuff early? So those kind of questions come to me early um, in terms of the, the final mix. A lot of times I'll talk to the composer and I'll say like how many, you know, they don't just give me the whole score. They give me like the strings and the, the, the horns and the percussion and the synthesizers. And they give it kind of to me in this breakout of different materials. And if we're mixing an Atmos or 7-1, I might want different elements. So we have discussions about what they're going to supply to me. 
um, so that during the mix, I have the tools that I need. And then when we're mixing very often, you know, something comes up and we're trying to work something out and I can, we have a, a sound effects editor on the stage or a dialogue editor and we can say, do you have a different version of that? Do you have a different, can you recut that? Can we resync for that? Do you have a, an alternate take that we can try? Because just in the mix, that particular element needs some different attention or different, you know, a different aspect to it to make it play in everything else. So we're constantly going back and forth, trying to get the best material. And in my job, because I'm at the end, most of my requests happen during the mix, but there are other people who are working before they get to me to, to get those sounds in. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. And even, even going back to uh, what you're saying there about a lot of these issues could be fixed on set, mm -hmm. very simply. And mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of um, a lot of the maybe not the budget, but just a lot of thought goes into how things are going to look. I know film is a visual media, and that is that's pretty important, like it is. Um, but you do sometimes from working on. I don't know if you've worked on set yourself, have you? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, so you might notice it too that you're kind of shafted off to the side a little bit. You're the last person to come onto the set. And you're the first person to leave, and. Um, I don't know. It just it seems like a lot of the the praise goes towards the um, the the camera work and the special effects and that and sound really does have to be that it has to be subtle and um, the best in my opinion the best sound is it's subtle that it's not in your face that it doesn't you know it just it helps the story along. Mm -hmm. Do you ever find that it can be a bit thankless sometimes the sort of job that you're doing? Yeah, but I, um, I guess it depends on your personality. You know, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> I don't need, I don't need a lot of praise. I'm, I'm, I'm very good. You know, you have and, your, so, you have your Oscar staring. Yeah, I have my Oscar. <laughs> I also, you know, I actually, I'm, um, when I went to film school, I, it, this is going to sound kind of weird, but I, it was never my dream to work on big blockbustery movies because they're not really the thing that I that's not really my jam but I love doing them but um the 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 personal you know satisfaction I get are on some of the other kinds of movies the smaller movies the stuff that the sound is just there to make sure that people can can enjoy it and watch it and maybe have a laugh or get you know a story point but I think that the things that really speak to me are not necessarily the biggest sound movies that I work on. And so it's, it's kind of just, just a delight for me to get to work on any of this stuff. Cause it's just so kind of crazy, weird and great. And, and um, if I, if I get praised for it, I'm like super grateful and thankful. And if I don't, I'm like, that's cool. Cause you know, there's other people who have contributed to this and it's not, um, <clears throat> You know, it's it's not in my personality to make that um, about me, I guess. So, uh, but I do think that that if directors, the directors who do take a lot of um, interest in sound and pay attention to it, really elevate their movies, you know, beyond what they are. And they and so it's, it's such a powerful tool to just make, you know, make the audience engaged and and bring all the feeling out and create the performances. Like all of those things are enhanced and experienced through the sound you turn you watch any movie you turn off the sound you're like you turn off the picture oh it's still going on i get it i'm following along so you know you have to kind of remember that you're we're telling stories we're telling stories it's not just a a, a picture book and i say that you're you're telling stories are there do you have a, t a particular i i I would imagine that most people would think that um, coming from, you went to film school and that you studied, and then the top of the ladder are those Marvel films or the blockbusters. Um, mm -hmm. But you're saying even their documentaries are very close to your heart. Was there any genre that just really like, that's what you, you want to, you love to work in the most? Um, I guess, uh, well, I, I, I like, I, I, when I was in film school, you know, it was sort of the beginning of the independent film movement. So a lot of my heroes are those filmmakers who made little movies and kind of more personal films. Um, and I really enjoy those. I think that they're, you know, they seem 
like they're made by human beings instead of by computers. So I, that's maybe that's my genre is films made by human <laughs> beings. Um, yeah. But I, I really don't, you know, people always ask me, what's the favorite movie you worked on? And it's honestly in my job, the favorite uh, experiences I have are with the people that I work with, you know, the different directors I work with. I can work on a really bad, not successful, you know, not good movie and have a great time if the the director and the picture editor and the composer and we're all you know enjoying this process and working together and collaborating and if you're on a big you know multi hundred million dollar movie and everyone's in a bad mood and no one's working together it's not it's not fun it's not a, it's not why i wanted to do this so um always seek out those movies because at the end of the day, those are the ones you remember are the ones that mean something to you personally, no matter how small they are. Um, May I step in there if I, is, that, is yeah. it okay if I ask a question? Um, I just wanted to, I, I wanted to ask you, um, for so what, what film school did you go to? If I, I went to, I went to New York University, NYU Film School as an undergrad and I graduated in 1985. Ooh, that's quite, a while, quite a while ago. So I worked, I worked in sound from, you know, magnetic, full coat, 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter, like all those formats and technologies that don't even exist anymore. But what I learned and, and anybody who wants to go into any film job, and I think this is really important advice and it served me like gangbusters is the thing you need to study is film history and art history and maybe some kind of you know communication or writing because you're when you talk to directors and the people that you want to work with they don't care about sound and they don't care about lenses maybe they do a little bit but or microphones but they what they really want to talk about is like this part of this thing this you know world that they're working in so if you can talk about different films different filmmakers the history of film what what this person did and how you want to, you know, they want their movie to feel like Tarkovsky. And I was like, how do you do that? You have to know what those movies are when someone says that. And so mm -hmm. that's the thing, or even art history, like just visually, obviously in, in, in cinematography, you're always talking about painting and lighting and photography. So you need to know that, that history and those words and those references. Um, mm -hmm more than anything else, I think. And so anyone who wants to go into film school or into um, any kind of technical job, I say, spend a lot of your effort because that's the time you get to learn it really is during that, that, uh, that period of your life. And it is different now because when I was in film school, we didn't have, you know, video stores were just starting. So if you wanted to see a movie, you had to wait till it came to the theater and then you had to go and you had to like, pay attention and watch it. And then you had to remember it. So there was this very, like, it was a very impactful, I don't know if that's a word, but very important experience to go see the movie. Uh, one director explained it to me. He said like, we, it used to be that you go to see a movie and it was used to be, that was the dream. And then you had the dream of the dream. We we're trying to remember what it was that you were in that experience. And so you always were filtering it through your own kind of consciousness. And now we can just go and hit play and search something up and play the scene and pick it apart, but, um, you know, it's a different, it's a different world in that way. But I think we have much more access to seeing films from all over the world, different filmmakers, different styles. And I think that's brilliant. So take advantage of that if you want to want to be in this business. That's a great that's advice. It. Thank you. Mm -hmm. It is. No, absolutely. Um, so you graduated in 85. Did you, have you trained under people or was it just, did you sort of just take off on your career by yourself? Um, How did that process go? Right. So I, I was in New York City and I worked in, um, after I graduated film school, I worked in different film related jobs. I was on set and I was uh, in different aspects of it. And then I ended up uh, working at a, a studio, a small studio uh, downtown that we did um, art we worked for uh, artists, visual artists, video artists. We worked for dancers, um, different types of performance artists. We created lots of, lots of different versions of soundscapes or pre-recordings or some records, like different uses of sound that weren't necessarily synchronized to picture, which I found to be really interesting and 
it, it gave me the opportunity to like try different equipment out and try different techniques and problem solving. We didn't have very much money. So we had to come up with our own way of synchronizing the, at that time, the tape machine to the videotape and, you know, using different equipment and wiring a studio. And so I learned all the sorts of the, the guts and the different parts of the technology. And I got kind of comfortable with that and it didn't intimidate me. Um, and then I moved to San Francisco, which had a great, still does obviously has the, the best um, sort of post-production sound community. We have American Zoetrope and Lucasfilm, Skywalker Sound. We have, uh, we had at that time, Fantasy Studios and the Saul Dance Film Center. We have Francis Coppola, George Lucas, you know, Phil Kaufman, um, just this great Walter Murch, this great history of, of post-production audio. And of course, Ben Burt and Star Wars and all that stuff is in this community. But there was also a whole other community that worked on um, commercials and, and different types of smaller projects. Um, great documentary community here too. So I moved here and got kind of worked my way into those different facilities. Uh, and then ended up at um, Skywalker Sound in the machine room, which meant I was sort of like running the tape machines and stuff and um, just kind of gravitated towards the mix room. I didn't, again, I didn't even know that job really existed. I kind of knew what it was, but I didn't really know what the, what it entailed. And the people who worked there, Tom Johnson, one of the great mixers was sort of a mentor to me. And the first day I came in, he goes, here, come here. I'm going to show you how to do this. When I tell you to do that, just do that. And I'm like, okay. And so, you know, somebody helped me feel comfortable and kind of demystified the whole thing. Cause it can, sound can be kind of like weird medieval alchemy stuff. You're like, I don't know what all that is. But at the end of the day, it's the same thing. A signal comes in, you do something to it, you re-record it and it comes out the speakers. So once you have that kind of confidence and you can just find out where this piece of equipment fits in that chain, then you can feel comfortable asking questions and learning more. And so at Skywalker, um, it was great because like I said, Tom Johnson and uh, there's a woman, Gloria Borders, who was the supervising sound editor and all the people who ran that facility were really encouraging of, of young people coming in there and training them and giving them their information and their experience. Um, and so I just kind of slowly worked my way up from the machine room into the mixing room and met different people, uh, kind of got me different jobs. And, you know, it's a long, <laughs> long road, but um, I do think that it's very important for all of us who have jobs where we are kind of more senior in our position to, to really spend time, especially with women who want these jobs, to spend time and invest in their success with your own time. Um, you know, if somebody needs a, you can recommend them for work. And then if they have questions, you can answer their questions and you can give them another job. And if they don't do great on it, you can help them do better instead of, I think women don't necessarily always get second chances like guys do. So it's up to us to give those women the second chances and the third chances and the fourth chances. Cause that's what I was sort of given. And it's our responsibility to do that, you know, for other women who want want these jobs. And is that something that you would you would do now? Are you training people, or do you you know help interns in that? Do you Absolutely. are you playing that mentor role? Mm -hmm. every, every place I can, and I also encourage all the women that I work with to do that exact same thing. That's part of our responsibility. Um, we have, you know, there's sort of levels of. Um, in the in the post-production sound world, there's mix techs who sort of help the mixers. There's assistant editors who help the editors. There's different jobs. And those people who are female who come into those jobs, we make sure that they know all of us in the different parts of the jobs and that we can all give them assistance. If someone says, I think I want to move from this job to that job, you say, okay, let me help you do that. So we're very, I think at Skywalker, we have a really good community of women um, and it, it's been that way for a very long time. When I started, there were, you know, a lot of women who worked there. So it's, it's sort of our culture to be really inclusive and, and um, supportive and make sure that, uh, and we tell the, the, you know, the management, it's like, there's too many guys here. We need to hire more women, you know, I said, go find them here, here. Let me hear, hear the name, take that name, give that person a chance, you know, and I'll help her. I promise you will help her succeed. So we're very proactive to make sure that we can, keep that um 
that culture going. And it's really on, it's not the management's, they don't know how to do that. So we do, I mean, they, they're good at it. I'm not putting them down because they're awesome. They really are. Um, the guy there, Josh Loudon, who runs Skywalker Sound is like one of the most amazing managers I've ever worked with. And he's got this whole big picture and he knows exactly how to, you know, how to do that. But it's really up to the people who work there to help them do that. It's not just all on their plate. That's, that's no, it's, it's lovely, it's lovely to hear. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Aoife, sorry. Uh, no, it's just, it's lovely to hear that, that, that there is a culture of that over uh, where you're working and that you guys are being so proactive. I find a lot of, uh, a lot of places in, in film, uh, especially for women, can be very difficult to even get your foot in the door, you know, to, to, to start off. Um, and like you say, a lot, a lot of times women don't get more than, mm-hmm. more than one chance if they do even get the, you know, the extra chance Mm-hmm. Um, how, how would you do would you have any advice for someone who's starting off in like today's culture in 2021 mm-hmm. like if you want to if you want to start uh, if you want to start getting there you know how, how would you how would you go about it if it was yourself if you were starting now um, I think yeah, that's a that's a great question and it's hard to answer because there's so many different ways to do it. but I think basically trust your instincts trust your where you want to end up like you know, ask questions and, and give yourself, um, this is, it's funny. Cause again, this, this was in the Shang-Chi movie that I just finished. There's a line, you know, there's a lot of kind of, um, philosophy stuff in there, which is great. It's a, it's a really fun movie. And at one point, uh, someone says to this young woman, she's like, I don't think I, you know, I, I'm always happy with what I got. And, and this older, um, you know, woman says to her, well, if, if you don't aim at anything, you'll never hit anything. So they're talking about bows and arrows, mm-hmm. but at that, that is a really good advice because if you need to know what you want to do to actually get there. And the, the thing I, a lot of people, you know, will send me emails or whatever, and they'll say, yeah, I want to come in. I'll do anything. I'm like, I don't care. Tell me what you want to do. Anything isn't a job, you know? So do your own research, figure out what you're really interested in, what part of the process speaks to you. Um, and maybe you don't know. If that's the case, go be a PA on a, on a set and just look around. Or uh, it's hard in, in our industry and in sound actually in, uh, where I work is that it's very unionized, which is terrific because it creates you know, so much job security and, and it's a really important part of our culture, but it's hard to come in to a union shop as a non-union person. So we're trying really hard to get more apprentice jobs and kind of entry-level jobs in, internships, but um, it's important to go into a place with some kind of focus about what you wanna do, because then you can find the people who want to help you or will be able to help you. Um, And, you know, seek those people out, like go try to talk to them. You can knock on 10 doors and one person's gonna open the door and you can have a conversation, so. Don't give up on that, but know exactly what you want to, what that conversation is going to be about instead of just like, I really like movies and I want to work in them. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, go ahead, if, uh, I, if, you, if, you, if you have something, otherwise uh, we're starting to get questions also from our listeners, but uh, I can yeah. help if you have something, Eva. I have one, uh, just what, what are one or two more than just interested in myself? Um, you're saying that you start off in the uh, in the machine room. Mm-hmm. Do you miss working with tape? Because I've I've done it a very small bit, but it was really really fun. Is there like those sort of technological advancements? There's been a lot now over the past thirty years. Uh, mm-hmm. Are there any things that you miss or that you're just are very glad are gone? Well, one thing about um, working digitally, in and we work in Pro Tools. I'm sure you do the same thing. Everything's you know computer-based, it really seriously opened up uh, access. And the same with with, um, digital picture, it opened up access to so many more people to make much more interesting movies, personal movies, like the the budget isn't a a constraint in the post-production side. When I started, you had to have at least $10,000 just to shoot your film. Now you don't, you can use your phone, you know? So um, I think that I don't, I don't miss the you know, sort of the cumbersomeness and the, and the um, expense of it. But I do miss that it did make you create, you were trying, 
you, you had to make a choice before you did something. You had to decide, this is what I wanna do. And so you thought about it, the process was a lot slower and longer, but part of that was you spent time thinking about what you were gonna do, because once you did it, it was hard to go backwards. Now it's just like, eh, hit a button, undo, undo. You can try a bunch of things out now, but then you kind of had to be purposeful in your, in your thinking. And I think once you, people are purposeful in their thinking, they kind of commit to their idea and they own it and they're gonna, let's keep going forward instead of like, well, I don't know, let's go back and try something else. So I miss that, that, that sort of mental space that, mm-hmm. that, that technology, when you cut that tape, it was a pain in the ass to put it back together or you had a bunch of slices or you'd have to get another print, you know? So it, it, it did make you more thoughtful about what your intention was. And it also made you own your decisions more. And so there was a lot, I think it was a lot less angst about stuff in a way, because it's like, yeah, that's what we did. We're going there. Let's do that instead of, I don't know, maybe we, you know, maybe we should do something different. So um, that I do miss about, about tape. Yeah. Physical tape tape was kind of nasty. I don't know if you remember, but there's lots of really evil chemicals in that stuff and melt and shed and it got got kind (laughs) of gross. I just went through, um, I have this box of stuff and I just opened it up and I found all these like DA88s and all these old tapes. I don't even have a thing to play them on anymore. And then I found a bunch of drives and I was like, oh, I should find out what's on these drives. I didn't have the power supplies to turn on the drive. So I guess tape, I don't miss the fact that if you had a tape player and a tape recorder, you know, a tape player and a tape, you could actually get the sound off of it. Now it's like a little bit weirder. It's definitely a lot more difficult for sure. Uh, yeah. Just one more on, on that point. Uh, you're saying you're working with Pro Tools. Do you have, just for my own personal gratification, do you have any um, uh, plugins really that you would use a lot that really, really save you? Um, well, I do a lot of, a, a lot of my work is um, dialogue mixing. And so a lot of the plugins that I like are the ones that are very helpful for dialogue editing and dialogue cleanup. Um, but again, I think people get used to the, the plugins that they're really comfortable with. I, I think the Isotope company that makes makes um, RX and all those kind of um, tools for cleaning up sound, are, are, are those are super powerful. I really like those. Um, there's other, there's so many that I don't even know what they are. So I just sort of use the ones that I'm really comfortable with. But Isotope yeah. is one of my go-tos. Um, I have to, f- I find a filter that I'm really comfortable with that I can automate. Um, I still use Outboard Reverb because I have a, a TC6000 um, Reverb device that I really like because I'm just familiar with it and I can go to it and find the sound I want. You open up a Reverb plugin and there's like 1,500 different presets and you're like, ah, yeah, ah. <laughs> you know, so I try to find stuff that I'm comfortable with and stick with it. Um, it all sounds it all sounds good. And then if you want to do something weird, then you go and start poking around and finding weird stuff to play with. But yeah. No, it's cool. I love, I love that you're still, you're still using iPod stuff. It really, mm-hmm. it does make a difference. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that was a lot of, a lot of my stuff anyway. Yeah. You were saying you mm-hmm. had some questions come in there. Yeah, I do. So I'm just going to read a few questions from our listeners. Um, it's a mixed bag. So I will start with the first one. Um, did you have experience, sorry, did you experience any pushback being a woman in this field? Or was it mostly just uh, support, support, support? Well, so I am, I am the first and only woman who's won a sound mixing Oscar. And that was 10 years ago. And I'm very proud to be the first, but I am not proud to be the only. I think that's kind of, shameful after 10 years. So um, pushback is a weird word because I don't, I, I've only gotten a lot of support actually. And my mentors have all been men and they've been super helpful. And like I said, Josh Latham at Skywalker is incredibly supportive and a great collaborator and partner in all of this. Um, but I feel like there's just less women who know about these jobs and who enter these jobs. And historically these jobs, these technical jobs have been kind of apprentice jobs in a, in a medieval sense where the, you know, the father teaches his son. Or, and so 
Um, I always say to those guys, like, where's your daughter? What's your daughter do? Where's your niece? What's she up to? Why isn't she here? You know, what's your sister? Is she in the sound business too? So you, I kind of keep trying to remind them that they have to find people who don't necessarily look exactly like themselves. Maybe they've mm -hmm. got some of the same genes, that's fine, but different equipment, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that's really. Um, I don't. I haven't, but I haven't experienced pushback. But I think it's mostly that. I, that again, a lot of women. You know, when I when I was in film school, there was kind of a weird pivotal moment where, and I didn't think about this until many years later. But I saw the film um, Bonnie and Clyde, which was cut by a very famous um, film editor, Dee Dee Allen, and she, was a female film editor, and that movie was I think 1968 or something. And I remember watching the credits and thinking, oh, wait, that's actually, you know, and there were a lot of women film editors, but that movie really stuck with me. It was very like kind of macho and really visceral and really great, amazing picture editing, obviously. Um, and I noticed it and then I noticed her name and I thought, well, you know, she didn't really. I couldn't say that Dee Dee Allen opened a door for me, but she opened a window for me. I could see like, oh, there's somebody maybe like me who does something that I'm interested in. I can do that too. And I, and I feel that that's part of my, you know, I want women to see me and to know that I do this job and I look mm -hmm. like this and I'm not some, you know, some big, I don't look like a, a airline pilot or a fighter pilot or something. I'm just a normal woman who works in this industry. And so that's, you know, we, we can do these jobs. They're open to us and people like us do them. And it, you know, it's very common. Like um, another thing you, if you're walking, you know, down a hall and you look in a door in a room and there's all men sitting in there as a woman, you don't necessarily walk in there because it doesn't seem like it's a, a comfortable space for you and men would do the same thing if there's a room full of women they wouldn't necessarily walk in there so um it's important to kind of recognize that that we kind of self-select out of certain jobs just because we don't feel like we're we we belong not that, that we're not talented or, or capable or but it's just mm -hmm. not a place for us so we have to always make sure that other women see us and know that this is a place where we you know open the window that you can see here i am so you can do this too and that's i think that's the most important thing Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Um, I will go to the next question. Um, you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, it's a, do you ever have to stand your ground if a director makes terrible choices? So you, you did say that you tried to fight uh, or, or defend something if you think mm -hmm. um, you know your solution might be mm -hmm. benefit the film more. Mm -hmm. but, but just uh, this question, yeah. I wonder, how far do you take it before you totally back down? <laughs> um, well, it's more that um, I, I very, I, I recognize if I'm the wrong person for the job and that's not a, that's not an insult to me at all. It's like, you know what, you should get somebody else to do this because I'm not the one who can do what you want. And mm -hmm. that's completely legitimate. You know, pick your physician, pick your, house painter, pick the people you want to work for you. And if you've got the wrong one, you should pick somebody else. And so if I'm in a, on a job where we're not communicating or I don't feel like I get it, you know, I have no problem saying like, okay, let's do what you want. But, and I know that I'm probably not going to be asked back, which is perfectly fine too. So it's not like I standing my ground is important. It's more, um, making sure that they have the, the right person. And, and if somebody's being a bad person, I won't say any kind of um, profanity, but if they're not being, you know, good, um, you know, you do stand your ground and sort of say like, okay, well, you know, I disagree, but um, yeah, let's do it your way. And, um, or I can say things like, you know what, this isn't, this will not pass the QC or this won't go through the spec or, we have to, we can't play it like that. It's not gonna, it's never, no one's ever gonna hear that that way because it, it won't get reproduced that way or, you know, those kind of things. Um, but very few directors, more often than not, directors get very paranoid that, the, that we're adding too much sound or we're doing something that they are not comfortable with. And I, I understand that because again, they've lived with this movie and this idea for so long. And then we come in at the end and we're like, here's all this new stuff we've, you know, 
we've thrown all these bells and whistles on top of your thing. Do you like it? And they're like, where's my thing? I can't see it anymore. There's all this stuff in my face. So you have to be aware that that's what, what I might think is important or fun or interesting can also be like overwhelming to them and, and just too much and not, not necessary. So I oftentimes, you know, I think that like, there's a power to subtraction, right? You take something away and suddenly, okay, it's simpler. And that one thing now is good. So let's try that. Let's keep pulling things away and the, the best stuff will come forward, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Uh, and I have one more question here, uh, Laura. Um, yeah. What's the biggest faux pas when it comes to sound on a feature? Are there any like no-nos that because I remember there was a time in cinematography when you would not do a zoom. Uh, you, <laughs> you know, know what? Though no. I just watched, I just watched um, uh, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, the Spoonwell movie, oh, okay. and there were zooms in it, and I was like, "Oh, that's so cool! Look at that!" Ah, oh. they're you coming know? back, <laughs> but well, there was a time when yeah, there was a know. time, right? And there was a time when we would, you know, we put a heartbeat in every damn movie, and we put a reverse symbol and a, you know, all this echo on everything and so those aren't really faux pas they're just you know they're just um trends Could you call them trends yeah 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 but they're but they're useful because like i said there's a history to some of those things that you can kind of touch on you put a zoom in a movie now people are gonna say "Ooh, how very 70s how many mm, that's weird you know if you put like really crispy kind of crunchy sound footsteps on something it's like oh that sounds like a weird old optical track you know so you can refer to those sounds um if you do it discreetly so i don't think there i don't think there's any no-nos in in any art there's basically just you just have to use pick your 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 places you're going to put things and then mm -hmm. they are actually positives instead of negatives mm -hmm. and and uh, just Sorry, um, about the trends, I have another question that just came in. What are the trends uh, we're about to see? Um, so we're ahead of the game. <laughs> um, <laughs> they want well, insider information. Well, we are mixing a lot in Atmos. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Atmos. Yeah, so it's basically a theatrical format that has um, multiple speakers. And instead of placing a sound at a particular channel, you place it in this 360 degree positioning, um, sort of a, a sound field. So you can say, I want the sound to come from 30 degrees north and 20 degrees west or whatever that would be, some sort of position in space. And then Atmos decodes that into the number of speakers and kind of using the different levels of the different speakers places it so you feel like you hear it in that space. And that's a really powerful tool. It's a you know, it's a beautiful, Dolby created the system and when you hear it reproduced correctly, it's actually, really fun. I just did a, I did a documentary that was at um, Sundance and the director won the, the directing prize. It's called Users. And you wouldn't think of a documentary as being, you know, something that needs Atmos sound, but we used uh, Dolby Atmos for it. And it was just, it's stunning. It's beautiful. So, you know, those kind of using those tools where they're kind of least expected can be really much more um, impactful. And so the Dolby Atmos system, um, because of the pandemic, obviously more people are listening at home, but you can, you can get home theater Dolby Atmos or sound bars that reproduce it. And it's kind of a cool, definitely a different feeling for sound. I think that there's going to be more kind of 3D sound uh, headphones coming out, perhaps. Um, mm -hmm. I know people are trying to record more in binaural because they're thinking more about headphone stuff. And that's very specific. That's kind of tricky to do to picture because picture is cutting different angles and different perspectives. And so when you're in a binaural headspace, you're kind of locked into that, your own, you know, you don't flip the camera around and uh, it would be, might kind of get seasick if you did too much of that stuff. So those kind of trends are coming um, or they're already here, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. If well, I could uh, jump in mm -hmm. there. Um, you're saying you're working a lot in Atmos and, you know, full surround. Are you doing separate mixes? You know, if you are you doing like a stereo mix as well? And if things are going, you know, the difference between things going into festivals and cinema and um, then. Oh, Wait, uh, but that's okay, because I have a backup question. So we'll refresh Ifa after my question. Okay. <laughs> uh, how do you look after your hearing, Laura? 
Yes, that's a really good question. Um, I have some earplugs that were uh, molded to my ears and I wear them whenever I can, like on airplanes. Um, you can't really wear those things when you're driving, but anytime in, in sound, loud sound environments, you know, when we mix these loud movies, we actually have to listen to them at that volume. We do have a dim switch where we can cut the level so we can work kind of at a low level and then, but we have to actually mix it in that, in that full level um, because that's how it's presented. Um, I work in teams. So I work with usually another uh, sound mixer and oftentimes we'll just take turns. We'll step out of the room, um, but it's hard. It's a, it's a definite, you know, concern. And mm -hmm. uh, but you do your best. Yeah, I do. I do my I best. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I try to listen. I try to look after my hearing when I'm not at work, too. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's important. People need to consider mm -hmm. that. I don't wear headphones and play stuff really loud. and I don't use earbuds or any of that stuff. I try to listen in space. Mm -hmm. Great. So uh, if I we have you back. And I'm actually Hello. going to. We're asking I'm about, actually, yeah, you're asking about different sound yeah. formats and deliveries, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, my, my question was, um, you're talking about doing, uh, working in Atmos and full surround. Are you doing separate mixes then for stereo for festivals and cinema and uh, Blu-ray or is that someone else that's doing that? Doing no, the separate mixes? I, yeah, we do that. And that's a huge part of the jobs. So we'll mix the film in the theater with the director and the, um, picture editors and the composer, we mix it in Dolby Atmos. So we hear that format. And then we take um, at the end of the process, at least a week, often more to do the separate mixes because we have to deliver it in 5.1. Even though Dolby Atmos is this great format, it's there's still 95% of the cinemas are gonna show it in 5.1 and home theater as well. So we have to make sure that that sounds the best. Um, that it can and it, and it does. We spend good time doing that. We also make a 7.1 mix, which usually goes out on the Blu-ray discs. Um, and then we make a, a what's called a low row, a left only, right only um, stereo mix. And that one actually is even more important because that's gonna go out on all the streaming TV services and everything else. So having listened to that Dolby Atmos and remembering in your mind, your, your muscle memory, your hearing memory of what the, what the intention was what's important in every scene, then you go to the next format and you make sure within those parameters, you get that same feeling and the next format. So we sort of down mix it from Atmos to 7.1 to 5.1 to stereo. And then we do a home theater version, home Atmos, home 7.1, home 5.1, home stereo. And each one of those in the home theater, you're listening in a different listening environment, different listening level, different speakers. You don't have a screen in front of you. You have you know, point source speakers instead of speakers in an array built into the walls of the theater. So every delivery system, every um, environment has a different sound and you have to make sure that the mix that you have in that sound uh, feels and represents and creates the same experience that you had in that Dolby Atmos. And, and it's important to me personally to do that because it's, I don't give, I mean, the Dolby Atmos one is great, but the other ones are as, or maybe more important because more people will see them and the director will see them at home and people, you know, we want those to be, you know, it's easier to, to mix down from the, the biggest to the smallest format, but by the time you get to the smallest format, it has to sound as great as it can. So you don't give up on it just because there's less speakers, you actually work harder. Yeah, did you, do you have, um because obviously especially when you're doing you know the the proper mix down you're going to be listening to different speakers do you have uh, a brand or model that you prefer or is it um, just speakers that you know them now uh for me it's it's stuff that i know um in home theater everybody there's no real spec to it there's no real listening level um uh there's a there's sort of a dynamic range level that's streamed to people but um we try to listen to it in what would be a good or high quality home theater. So that those people who've invested the money in that gear can hear it. Well, um, we check our stereos on like sound bars or something that's a little higher end than just the gen we, I can't, I can't judge anything on an iPad or an iPhone. That's like, forget about it, but you try to kind of get to where the, the home enthusiast who really cares about the sound and has put some money into it. Not the guy who's got the, 
four million dollar home theater, but you know he's going to be <laughs> yeah. fine. But but the other people, you know, who've gone to Best Buy or wherever and gotten the good thing that they want, um, that they can enjoy it, and and they're getting a representation that's that's legit. So we we do listen to it on different speakers. It's got we, when we're down mixing to the home theater, we different try different uh, speakers out, but we have a set that we're kind of used to and we're comfortable with, and we know how that's going to translate. Cool. And I, I just got the, the end of what you were saying there um, before I got cut off, that you would you would listen in space, you wouldn't listen on headphones or anything. Um, I tr well, I have. I have these kind of cool, fancy open ear headphones. Yeah, yeah, they're way too expensive, but they actually are great because they I can listen in them for long periods of time. If you if you have to use headphones try to invest in open ear headphones or good headphones because that's going to protect your hearing a little bit better. You'll get less ear fatigue and you'll be more comfortable uh, for long periods of time, especially sound editors um, who have to work in headphones. A lot of times we have these very sealed in closed headphones, which are good if you're working in a loud environment, but if you don't necessarily have a loud environment at home and you just need to work in headphones, you know, it's a good investment, I think, to get some good open ear ones. It's just a little less fatiguing. Mm -hmm. I have to, uh, first of all, say this is really fascinating. Sorry, Ifa, I know you would you would want to talk to Laura so much more <laughs> longer, so much longer. But I am also mindful of your time, Laura, uh, um, and uh, just fantastic. Thank you, everybody who has uh, posted questions here. Um, this is this is the time to say goodbye. Thank you and goodbye. Ifa, great questions. Laura, wish you all the best in your future career, in your personal life. I hope you have a good summer uh, where you are. Thank you. Um, and uh, I just uh, look forward to another of these talks. Thanks, both of you. Have a lovely day. Thank and, you. Uh, we'll see you again. Bye. 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 As always, many thanks to Screen Skills Ireland for sponsoring this event. If you would like to support Women in Film and TV Ireland or see the work we do, log on to wft.ie.